Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. And now the verses we will give special attention to this morning. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Misunderstanding is all too common in our fallen world. And misunderstanding is everywhere. Uh, husbands misunderstand wives and they buy the wrong things at the store. Uh, wives misunderstand husbands and schedules get all confused and messed up. Employees misunderstand employers and they mess up the jobs they're supposed to be doing. Kids misunderstand parents, and they do the opposite of what they're supposed to be doing. Misunderstanding is just a normal part of life in this fallen planet. And we've all had our share of doing misunderstanding as well as being misunderstood. And sometimes misunderstandings can actually be kind of funny. Uh, one of the fun parts that comes with working with our kids is that sometimes kids have misunderstandings uh, about certain truths that actually comes out in very humorous ways. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, we were, I was teaching something having to do with Satan, and uh, not necessarily a funny subject. Uh, we were talking about Satan, and uh, I was asking the kids, and who are Satan's helpers? And, and one little boy raised his hand and very emphatically declared, Satan's helpers are called deacons. And uh, I said, I understand how you got that confused, uh, and I, that might even be true in some churches, I guess. I hope it's not true in ours. Uh, but no, it's, it's demons. Not, and so he had, he had a misunderstanding. Uh, there's some really uh, funny misunderstandings that are the basis of some commercials. I, uh, I saw a commercial that might be my all-time favorite commercial. I've only ever seen it online. But it's this commercial for this language software. And uh, it, it begins, um, the setup is in a, a German Coast Guard shack. Maybe some of you have seen this. Uh, and there's a new trainee for the German Coast Guard. And so his commander is walking around and he says, this is your chair. These are your charts. This is your radio. This is your responsibility. So get to your work. So the young man's sitting there at the radio, and very shortly you hear a distress call. Sounds kind of like an Australian accent. Mayday, mayday. We're sinking. And uh, the young man keys the mic, and he says, hello? And it comes back. We're sinking, we're sinking. And he answers, what are you sinking about? There was a very definite misunderstanding that happened there. Uh, sometimes misunderstandings can be funny, but sometimes misunderstandings can be fatal. 
And no misunderstanding is more fatal than having a wrong view of Christ. There's nothing funny about misunderstanding the person and the work of Jesus of Nazareth. But that's exactly what we're going to see happen in this passage. We've been studying throughout Matthew, and and we've been seeing that Jesus is the authoritative king. And Matthew has been presenting over and over again messages that show that he is the authenticated king. He's been doing miracles. He's been proving again and again who he really is. He's the king that we should believe in. And yet there's a very definite sub-theme to all this talk of Jesus' authority. And that is the mixed response that Jesus gets. As we continue through Matthew, we're going to continue to see Jesus as the authoritative king. And yet we're going to see some outright rejection of him as the authoritative king. We're going to see people who totally misunderstand his purpose and his work. We're going to see some people who have eventual rejection, who, who give lip service at first, but then fall away. And we're also going to have the joy of seeing some humble submission to this authoritative king. And yet what we see in the passage before us this morning is that there is the danger for all of us to misunderstand who Jesus is and what he's all about. And that is a very dangerous misunderstanding. The stories that authenticate Jesus' authority are sprinkled with all of these little eye-opening accounts about the true nature of discipleship. And so if you've noticed, over the last couple of weeks, we'll have a story about Jesus' greatness as he, as he heals a man with demons, uh, as he calms the storm. And then, we'll, and then we'll have a couple verses that deal with the nature of true discipleship. And that's where we are again this morning. Um, we just finished uh, last week talking about this amazing healing of the paralytic man, but more notably, his forgiveness from sins. And so Jesus has been presented as the one who has the authority over, um, over sickness, but also the one who has authority over sin. And now we get to see Jesus' authority in relationship to discipleship. And we're going to see another aspect, another facet of discipleship. And really what Matthew is doing is he's holding up discipleship as, as like a diamond that has all of these different edges. Um, there are all these different layers, um, all these facets of discipleship that we need to learn that, and that we need to see. And, and today we're going to see yet another layer of, of understanding and of beauty of what true discipleship actually is. Today we'll see from this passage that true disciples recognize and repent of their sin. This is what true discipleship is, according to Jesus. It's recognizing and repenting of our sin. We get to verse number nine and we read, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. It's very clear that Matthew is directly connecting Jesus passing on from there to the story that has that has just happened. And the story that just happened in the paralysis, uh, the crowds saw what Jesus did as he forgave sins, and the man picked up his bed and walked home after being paralyzed. They saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. And so as this Jesus, this authoritative Jesus, who had just been authenticated as the one who had this great power, as he passed on from there, as he moved on from healing this man, it says he saw a man called Matthew. And he saw this man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. It's really interesting that, that this verse comes like so many other things in Matthew, so very understated, um, because Matthew is here in this verse writing about himself. And he says, Jesus saw a man called Matthew. Now, we have in, in other gospel accounts that, that his name was also called Levi. And that's no surprise because we have so many New Testament characters who had two different names. So we have Simon, who is the same as Peter, 
we have Thomas. I'll ask you a harder one. We have Thomas. Anybody know Thomas's other name? This, this is not going to roll off your tongue like Simon and Peter. Didymus. All right, there we go. Somebody had it. Thomas, also called Didymus. Of course, we have Saul, whose name was also Paul. Well, Matthew apparently had two names, Matthew and Levi. Matthew is the name that we know him best as. Um, and yet here we see him, and our introduction is that Jesus sees a man called Matthew, and Matthew is sitting at the tax booth. And probably what's happening here, this tax booth, uh, is, is probably uh, a customs booth. They would, they would put tolls on, on goods that were passing through, uh, kind of like a tariff, uh, so customs duties. And so Matthew was probably sitting here. He's either on a strategic road or he's actually on the lake. And so Jesus, as he's traveling, he comes to this tax booth, which would be located at the exact right spot. They would tax absolutely everything. I mean, the Romans taxed uh, it all. Uh, they would tax the, the animals coming through, the, the packs that they were wearing. Uh, they, if anyone was coming through with goods, they would put taxes on those. And Matthew um, was sitting there at the tax booth being the tax collector. This tax booth is probably on the border between the territories of Herod Antipas and Philip. And it's not far from Capernaum because that's where our Lord is traveling from. And so Jesus comes there. He sees, the, he sees Matthew at the tax booth and he says to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And in this one short verse, we have everything we know about Jesus calling Matthew. What we see is Jesus calling a sinner to discipleship. And what we need to do in just, just this very short verse uh, is really understand um, all the amazing factors that are happening in this verse. Because Jesus is calling a sinner to discipleship, and it is a shocking call. We read this, and, and we're used to thinking about Matthew, and he's the one writing our gospel, and we think high thoughts about Matthew. And what we need to do is put our minds back into what's actually happening in the context and understand that Jesus is going on from there as the authoritative one, and he sees a man called Matthew, and Matthew is sitting at the tax booth, which means that Matthew is sitting as a tax collector, which puts him in a very certain class of people, a very certain class of a Jewish person. It puts him in the class of an outcast, of, of being considered the worst, the dregs of society, of being a reject. You see, the, the tax collectors uh, were susceptible to being unclean because they worked for Gentile superiors. They worked for Rome. And so there was always the danger of being ceremonially unclean. Not only that, but they were viewed as dishonest. They would charge more than what the law allowed, and they would make a very nice profit on it. They were considered to be dishonest, and greedy, um, always collecting more than they had to. They were also viewed as traitors because they were working for Rome. And so instead of siding with their countrymen against Rome, there were these Jewish tax collectors who were actually taking money at the expense of their own countrymen for the good of Rome. And so the Jewish people would have looked at a tax collector and said, you're a dishonest, greedy traitor. A tax collector would not be allowed to serve in any way in a synagogue. And in fact, they weren't even allowed to be witnesses in a court of law because their word meant nothing. You're a tax collector. Why should we trust you? Why should we listen to you? And so we need to realize what a shocking call this is that Jesus would call a sinner to discipleship because this king could have whatever disciples he wanted. I mean, he could have his pick. He was the authoritative one. He could have any kind of disciple he wanted. And what kind of disciple did he want? He wanted this man, Matthew a tax collector, a reject, an outcast. There is something shocking about the call of Christ because of the person and the character of Matthew. 
Not only was this call to discipleship shocking, it was also demanding. Uh, and, and oh so brief. Again, Matthew, oh so brief. He just has uh, these two English words for us. Follow me. We, we don't have any history of how much Matthew was familiar with the teaching of Jesus. Um, we don't have um, any further detail if Jesus said anything else. He just says these, these words in a command. Follow me. And that's it. It is a demanding call. And I think it's easy for us to think about discipleship and following Christ, um, just because of what we do in our lives, to think about following um, kind of like in a, in a spiritual kind of sense. We're, we're followers of Christ. All right? Again, we need to go back to what is actually being said in this text. And when Jesus said, follow me, he wasn't talking in, in a, some kind of spiritual jargon. He was saying, Matthew, I want you to get up off your seat and I want you to walk around with me. I want you to follow me. He's talking very literally and very physically. And certainly there were going to be spiritual overtones to that following. Well, let's remember that what Jesus was asking Matthew to do was to was to leave his tax booth behind, leave his work and follow Jesus around. Make Jesus his rabbi, his teacher, the one that he would he would give his life for. He would put everything else behind and he would follow him around. He would learn his teachings. He would learn his character and he would do whatever Jesus asked of him. That's what it meant when Jesus demanded of Matthew, follow me. And the shocking thing, uh, as we just get more and more shocked from this verse, Jesus just says to him, follow me. He gives him this demand, this call, this very literal call that's this, this start following me and keep on following me. And then we just read, and he rose and followed him. Just like that. That's all we get. And he rose, he got up. And he followed him. And that's all we get. There's, there's no fanfare here. There's just an obeyed call. It's a shocking call. It's a demanding call. And it's an obeyed call. He just gets up and he follows. The same account in Luke. Um, Luke tells us that Matthew left everything. Luke says, and Matthew got up. Levi got up and left everything and followed him. It's a remarkable thing. Clearly, this is a call to personal discipleship that goes so much deeper than listening to a sermon from Jesus or following him at a distance or, or hearing about him. This is a very personal, intimate call to be a personal disciple of Jesus. Matthew leaves behind his wealth uh, because he was a tax collector, because so many times they were dishonest. Often tax collectors were very wealthy individuals. Um, Matthew leaves behind his job. Uh, and we need to think about what that means. I mean, Matthew left his job for Rome. <coughs> Excuse me. Leaves behind his job. Uh, Rome cannot be that happy that he's abandoned his job. Not only that, but there were plenty more people waiting and eager to take Matthew's spot. There were plenty of other Jewish people who were going to be dishonest and greedy traitors as well. Outcasts, though they may be, they were wealthy. And so there was no doubt somebody just waiting to jump in and take Matthew's spot. Matthew's going to leave behind his job, his employment, his wealth, uh, and, and he's a tax collector. That, that doesn't exactly look good on your future resume. Uh, I, I worked at McDonald's for a little bit in high school, and then I collected taxes for 16 years, and I, we're done with you. Like, we, we don't want anything to do with you. He's, he's done when it comes to future employment in, in Israel. Nobody wants a tax collector. And, and he leaves his, his security that he has and his job, uh, and he leaves it all behind. And it just says so simply, and he rose and followed him. 
And it's easy for us to miss how much was happening in Matthew's life when it just says he rose and followed him. I mean, we just breezed that. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he got up and followed Christ. I mean, wouldn't you if the Messiah was talking to you? I mean, we have to remember that this is Matthew leaving behind everything and all that was dear and all of his security and all of his comfort. And he's following Christ. He's walking out on not just his wealth, but on a way of living. Because he's following a master now who's going to demand that he not be greedy and that he not be dishonest. And that, in fact, he live according to God's standards of righteousness. And so Matthew's not just turning his back on, on, his, on his wealth, and he's actually turning his back on his lifestyle. He's turning his back on his sin. And he's leaving it all behind and saying, I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus, which means ending my old sinful practices, which means saying goodbye to my former security, and now I'm following Christ. This is an amazing and a very simple verse, and there's a lot going on. It. It's shocking, it's demanding, and it's remarkable obedience that we see from Matthew. Well, there's some application here for us, certainly. Um, Matthew's call should certainly teach us some, some clear lessons. Um, one thing it should do is it should give us insight into the heart of Christ. Because we know the authority that Christ had, and because we know that he could do whatever he wants, notice what he does. I mean, if you have the authority to do whatever you want, and you have the authority to gather whoever you want to follow you, who would you pick? This gives us an insight into the heart of Christ because who he picks is an outcast reject. He picks Matthew, and that says something about the heart of our Lord. It also gives us insight into the heart of discipleship because today, although we don't have a physical following of Jesus like Jesus was telling Matthew, we do indeed have the opportunity to be followers of our Christ. And today, this call is no different. Today, <coughs> the call to be a Christian disciple is shocking. Christian, do you realize that of all the people he could have picked, Christ chose you? Of, of all of, of, all of the, the great intellects, he chose you. Uh, of, of all of the great and important people in the world, he chose you you there's something that is very deceptive about our salvation that is that it's just so so deceptively easy for us to think that we were kind of worthy of the salvation that we have grown accustomed to it's easy for us to forget the sinfulness of our sin it's easy for us to forget that when christ saved us whenever that was for you at, at whatever point that was in your life whether young or middle-aged or older when christ saved you he saved you out of your wretched undeserving state of sin and he didn't he didn't pick you because you were so obedient he didn't pick you because you had such great potential uh, he picked you when you were in absolute rebellion against him uh, when when he gave you his instructions and you said no even when we were still sinners our christ demonstrated his love for us we should be shocked there should be an element that we look at ourselves and go i can't I can hardly fathom the reality that of all people to, to choose as a disciple, Christ has chosen me. Because see, you're no, worth, no more worthy and I'm no more worthy than, than Matthew was. If we're not shocked that Jesus chose us, if that's kind of a, well, of course he, of course he did. Uh, we, we've missed, we've seriously missed what it is to be a disciple of his. We have not recognized the extent of our sin if, if it does not boggle our minds that of all people, Christ would choose us. 
Our call to discipleship is shocking. It's also demanding. For us, Christ also demands everything. We have to think and we have to act Christianly in, in every aspect of our lives. It's not like there's, a, there's an area that we get to hold back as our own. And we say, oh, I'm going to be a follower of Christ in, in X, Y, and Z. Um, but when it comes to this area, I, I'm just going to hold back. So uh, you can have my time on Sundays, Lord. Uh, but my Mondays, those are mine. Uh, my Saturdays, uh, I'll, I'll give you Sunday. But don't you dare even think about talking to me about giving you any time on Saturday. Because that's my day. Uh, I'll agree that most of the Bible's true, and, and I'm going to follow along with most of Jesus' teaching, but there's some things that I just don't want to swallow. Okay, that, that's not an option for a genuine disciple of Christ. Uh, we have to leave behind everything, our, our way of thinking, our ideals. Um, Jesus isn't going to call you to abandon your job, but he is going to call you to be a Christian disciple at your job. We don't get the option of resisting the demands of our Christ while telling ourselves that we're in good standing with him. And if we're doing that, then we're just fooling ourselves about the state of our discipleship. If there's something we're holding on to and we're saying, no, Christ, you can't have this. And it says something about the Christ that you profess to be a disciple of. True disciples give to their master everything. And. Like Matthew's obedience, our response to Christ must also be one of obedience. Have you obeyed the, the command of the gospel? Are you aware that the gospel has a demand for you? Uh, the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died on a cross for our sins, and, and he died, and he was buried, and he rose again. Uh, that gospel has demands on us, and it demands that we believe that truth and then live differently, that our lives match our profession of the gospel of grace. There are demands for us from the gospel. Are, are we really obeying those and living out the truth of the gospel? Or are we still playing Christian games? And we've held off on saying that we're going to follow Christ in, in every aspect. We're not so shocked that he would call us because in our minds, we kind of deserve it and we're kind of good people after all. Have we actually submitted to the gospel that teaches us that, that we are sinners who bring nothing to the table? And have to only accept the work of Christ. And that is our only hope. Our only substitute. Have we obeyed that message and submitted to it? Well the interesting thing about this account. Is that the centerpiece of this story. Is not Matthew's call to discipleship. This is not the, the emphasis and the focus of this whole entire passage. Actually what we see in verse number 9. Is a setup for what will come in verses 10 through 13. <coughs> really Matthew's call to discipleship. Uh, stands as an object lesson. And Matthew uses it as an object lesson for the teaching that is to follow. This is really a, a remarkable thing uh, because of the humility that, that Matthew has. I mean, this was a defining moment in all of Matthew's life. I mean, this just changed everything from this point on. And, and Matthew doesn't spend any time elaborating on this. He doesn't even give himself any credit. He doesn't even include the words that Luke did, that he left everything. He is so humble. He's... He's so mild about his description of this falling because he's trying to accomplish something else with these words. And what Matthew is trying to accomplish with this account is not to point to his own conversion, his own calling. His point is to look at the authoritative king who called him to a certain kind of discipleship. So his calling is the object lesson and it sets the stage for what follows. And what follows is verse number 10. And it says, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. 
Matthew was not resigned and saddened at the cost of discipleship because this feast that he talks about in verse number 10, Luke tells us is a feast that Matthew throws himself. And when Matthew again humbly says Jesus was reclining at table in the house, Luke tells us it is the house of Matthew. All right. And Matthew just leaves himself out of this story. Uh, And again, that draws our attention, not not to Matthew, but to the point that Jesus is trying to make in these words. It says, as Jesus reclined at table in the house. Does it feel to you as we read from verse number 9 down to verse number 10 that we kind of had this sudden, like, jarring change? It says, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house. Like, well, where was the house? When did the table, where did the table enter in? I mean, he, he gets up and follows him, and all of a sudden we're talking about food and a feast and a house. Uh, there's kind of this like jump from following him at the at the booth to all of a sudden now we're inside a house. All right. It's not a very it's not a very smooth transition. <clears throat> and one of the reasons for that um, is that verse number 10 does does not follow um, chronologically hard on the heels of verse number nine. There's actually a, a gap of time between when Christ calls Matthew and when Matthew throws this feast. All right. It's easy for us to read from verse nine down to verse 10. And, and we think he gets up and he follows him and they walk into the house and he throws a feast. But there's actually a bunch of events that happen in between there. All right. And yet Matthew's putting these together because he's trying to prove something about discipleship. This is the point in this passage. He's used himself as the object lesson. And now he says, all right, after this discipleship, this call to discipleship, as shocking as it was, um, what happened later is Jesus is reclining at table in the house. And it says, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. I love that word, behold. That's Matthew's little, uh, that's Matthew's little addition to get your attention. Uh, he's going, hey, look here. I want, I want you to look at this. There's something particular I want you to see, all right? And we need to see it too. All right, that's what I'm trying to wake you up. Uh, we need to see something too. We need to behold, all right? What is that something that we need to behold? This is what you're supposed to look at in these verses. What are we supposed to look at? Many tax collectors and sinners. That's what you're supposed to see. You're supposed to see Christ, the Messiah, spending time with many disreputable sinners. And Matthew says, pay attention. This is what was happening at the feast. There was tax collectors and there were sinners. That's, that's, that was the guest list at this thing. Tax collector, check. Horrible sinner, check. Next tax collector, check. And this is not really like a guest list at your normal party. Hmm, adulterer, yep, check. Yes, come on in. Murderer, check. Traitor, check. This is, this is who is here. It's, it's the refuse of society. Uh, people that were outcast by the Jewish uh, community. Uh, some of them just because of their high standards of ceremonial purity. I mean, these would be people that for whatever reason could not meet the ceremonially pure standards of the Pharisees. Tax collectors and sinners just includes this whole group of people, whether they worked for Rome, whether they were kind of the riffraff of society, or whether they were people that just didn't match the Pharisees' kind of standard. These are all people that were gathered together, and they were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, verse number 11 tells us, when the Pharisees see this, They have a very certain response. They said to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, the Pharisees probably would not have gone inside the house. Uh, They probably would not have entered in such a a place where there would be such horrible sinners everywhere, lest they too become unclean. Maybe they saw them going into the house. Maybe they saw them coming out of the house. 
but, but they're not standing there at the feast participating. They see. The idea is they, they see from a distance, whether they're standing at the doorway or they just hear the news that this feast is going on. <clears throat> and they ask a question of Jesus' disciples that is actually a whole more lot, more lot like an accusation. It comes out like an ac- accusation. Why would your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And you can just hear the, the disdain and the contempt. He's with your master. Your master, they stress, he's with tax collectors and sinners. I mean, this, this just shakes their whole world. I mean, it, it rocks the Pharisees' boat. I mean, sharing a meal would have been so much worse than merely teaching sinners. And the Pharisees weren't even willing to spend time teaching the sinners. And so here's Jesus, and maybe they're willing to give him a pass. Okay, yeah, you're, you're doing the whole teaching thing. You're, you're trying to reach out to those poor outcast people and and all right, we'll give you a break on that. But Jesus, you have way crossed the line. All right. Now you're not just teaching them. Now you're actually eating with them. You're you're fellowshipping with them. And and this was so earth shattering uh, for the Pharisees. This was so outside of, of their comprehension. Why they say to Jesus disciples, why would he do such a thing? Because the Pharisees were expecting a Messiah who would crush the sinful and support the righteous. They had little place for one who accepted and transformed the sinner and who dismissed the righteous as hypocrites. That kind of Messiah didn't fit into their thinking because, you see, they misunderstood the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It didn't fit with what they expected from the Messiah. And so they say, why is this happening? This is bizarre. But, verse 12 tells us, But when he heard it, Jesus had a response in in contrast to the Pharisees. But when he hears it, when he hears this question that's actually an accusation, Jesus says this. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And now Jesus is going to get into the teaching of the point. We have seen Jesus calling a sinner to discipleship. And now he's going to make the point. Jesus calls all men to discipleship. And he's going to make this point, first of all, um, by giving this kind of um, this kind of maxim, this point, this this um, this parallel, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. All right, it makes it's a perfectly understandable analogy, right? Uh, the people who are well don't go to the doctor, so it's people like me and my family who are going to the doctor right now. All right, it's sick people. We expect the doctor to be around sick people, and of course, back then. Uh, you have a, a very active house-to-house visitation from the doctor. He's, do, he's doing house calls all the time. And he says, well, that's just expected. The people who are well, you don't need to see the doctor. It's the people who are sick that need the doctor, right? This is, this is self-evident. Jesus goes on to make a point out of this self-evident truth. Verse number 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. <coughs> For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. When Christ says, go and learn what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, Jesus is actually treating the Pharisees like they're students instead of they're, they're the teachers of the law. That, that expression, go and learn, was a, was a common expression that the, that the rabbis, the teachers, would say to their students when they wanted them to research something. All right, go and learn such and such from the Old Testament. And now Jesus says that to the Pharisees of all people. Uh, This had to just infuriate them uh, to no end. Here's Jesus telling them to go and learn something. I mean, they're the masters of the law. They they understand it all. 
And Jesus says, you need to go and learn something because you misunderstand who I am and you even misunderstand the Old Testament. He's saying that they missed the boat. And where they missed the boat was in Hosea chapter number 6. Now, we're going to do something that uh, we, we need to do, and yet I don't want your eyes to glaze over. We're actually going to flip back to the book of Hosea, all right? Hosea is a minor prophet, and when I say Old Testament, minor prophet in Hosea, I know some of you are going, oh boy, this is going to be rich. Uh, no, we, we need to get to Hosea because we need to be able to learn uh, what Jesus' point was as well. It's not just for the Pharisees to go and learn. Uh, we need to understand what's going on here as well, and we need to go back to Hosea to do it. All right? So Isaiah, Hosea is the first in the list of the minor prophets. So if you get to Daniel and you go just a little bit further, you'll find Hosea. All right? Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. We're going to be in Hosea chapter 6. Uh, let me just get you caught up to speed really fast when it comes uh, to Hosea. Hosea. Um, wrote in approximately the 8th century, and he was a contemporary of Isaiah. All right? So if you're thinking of Isaiah and Hosea at the same time, good job. Uh, Hosea was written to Israel, so was Amos and Jonah. And those are the only three minor prophets that actually got written to Israel. And all the rest got written to Judah. And that's important for understanding what's going on in this book, um, because what we need to know is that Israel apostatized first, and worst, all right? That's how you can think of Israel. They were the ones who rejected um, the covenant and they broke the covenant um, long before Judah ever did. In fact, Israel went into captivity about 140 years before Judah did. And that captivity was God's punishment on them for breaking his laws, all right? So Hosea comes and, and he wrote in a time that there was prosperity and yet there were many warning signs of trouble in the nation of Israel. And one of Hosea's main theme is that what was happening in Israel was lots of religion, that was only external. That's all it was. It was only on the outside. They were still keeping the ceremonies. They were still doing the sacrifices. And yet there was no genuine heart for God. This is a theme in Hosea and all throughout the minor prophets. In fact, some people see this theme so much that they think the minor prophets were trying to stop the sacrificial system. And I think that's going reading entirely too much into the minor prophets. They were, they were merely saying not that we have to replace and get rid of the sacrificial system. But they were saying the same thing Jesus would say. The sacrificial system is not about externals. And the law of God is not about what's on the outside. It's about the heart condition. So we get to Hosea chapter number 6. Let me read verse number 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. All right? Their love is like the dew that, that quickly goes away. All right? We get a lot of fog around here. Sometimes the fog doesn't go away as quickly as we'd like, but you get the idea of something that comes for a little bit and then passes and it's gone. All right? That's what their love was like. So, verse number five, Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. He says, I, I use teaching to judge you, to bring you up short. And now we read the verse that Jesus just quoted, Hosea 6, 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And look at this description of what was happening in Israel. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. What was going on in Israel was that even the priests were so corrupt that they were doing murder and villainy, all the while claiming to be the, the religious uppity-ups. All right? So what you had was an external religion that hadn't changed the heart, 
Um, and you and you have these words from Hosea that come directly from the heart of God. I desire steadfast love. I desire mercy, keeping the covenant. This kind of love that doesn't come and go like the morning dew, but the steadfast love that continues. And that's what I want. And not just mere sacrifice. And I want the knowledge of God rather than your burnt offerings. He's saying, I want the heart of worship. Despite keeping all of the religious formalities, the people of Hosea's day were apostate in God's mind. God wanted relationship with their obedience and not mere ritual. Because you see, religion without relationship is worthless. God is offended by external religion without an internal change. And that's nothing new, and it, and it shouldn't come as any surprise to us. We can even think about First Samuel chapter 15. You know the account um, where, where Saul spared um, some of the people, um, Agag the king. He spared some of the sheep because he wanted them for himself. And Samuel came to confront him, and this, these were Samuel's words to Saul. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Is that all I want? I just want you to go through the motions, kill a lamb here, kill a lamb there, and the rest of the time I just disobey you. Samuel says, that's not what the Lord has delight in. Behold, pay attention. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. See, God has always cared about the heart that goes behind the worship. He's always cared about the internal. And we should especially not be caught surprised by this kind of thinking because we've come through the Sermon on the Mount. And over and over again, the Sermon on the Mount informed us that what God cares about are those who are broken in spirit, who actually have the internal religion and not just the mere external. And Christ put demands on us on the Sermon on the Mount that went so far deeper than, an, than a checklist of religion. That's what he's saying here to the Pharisees. I want you to learn. This is what we're supposed to go and learn in Matthew 9, 13. What our God wants is mercy, is loving kindness, is steadfast love, and not merely sacrifice. Jesus is using this quote to put the Pharisees in the exact same boat as the apostates in Hosea's day. He's saying they've maintained the shell without the heart. All right? They're like an uh, like Easter bunny that's chocolate on the outside and it's all empty on the inside. All right? They're hollow. There's nothing there. In fact, the Pharisees' attitude toward Christ and towards these sinners merely proved their profound misunderstanding of what genuine religion actually was. They missed the boat. And so Jesus says, you need to go and learn. What I care about is the internal and not just the external. And he adds this. You not only have misunderstood the Old Testament, you have misunderstood my mission. For I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Jesus says, I came. He says the purpose. Here's, here's what I came for. You want, to know, you want to know what the Messiah is here to do that you're so badly misunderstanding? I came not to call the righteous. That word not actually comes first in the sentence in the original, which gives it the emphasis. I came not. Not did I come to call the righteous. Christ did not come to congratulate the Pharisees for their good deeds. He did not come to join their self-righteous condemnation of everybody else. Jesus' central ministry was the forgiveness of sin, and it meant that he came to call the despised, and he called the disgusting elements of society, and not those who thought they were so righteous. His mission was not to call the righteous. It was not to say, 
hey, good job, guys. You're doing so great keeping my law. And attaboy, way to keep tithing that mint and, uh, and way to keep caring about tiny little things of the law while rejecting the rest. That's not at all what Christ came for. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but instead, in great contrast, but I came to call sinners. And when he says, but sinners, he uses the strongest possible word for a contrast. Not this, but this. Not righteous, but sinners. Now look, Jesus' statement here does not mean that he says the Pharisees are fine with God. All right? He's not saying, Pharisees, I, I don't need to minister to you because you're in good shape. Uh, you're, you're good with God. He calls you righteous. I call you righteous. Um, you're fine. Uh, don't, don't worry about it. He's not saying that these were, the Pharisees were people who were already perfectly acceptable to God. What he's actually saying is that the righteous must first recognize their sin. The Pharisees had no concept that they were sinners. And so when Jesus calls all men to discipleship, he first says that the righteous, the self-righteous, must first recognize their sin. Jesus' statement of, I came not to call the righteous but sinners, defines the essential nature of his mission. And so when Jesus says, I didn't come to call you Pharisees, you righteous ones, but sinners, what Jesus is actually saying is that you Pharisees are going to miss out on the blessings of my ministry. I didn't come for you. You see the exclusion in that? I'm not here for you Pharisees. You're going to miss the blessings of the messianic kingdom. You misunderstood the purpose of my coming. And this is why I said misunderstanding of Jesus is fatal. Because the Pharisees misunderstood Jesus' point, And so they missed the kingdom. They missed the salvation that Christ had to offer. They missed being a genuine disciple because they couldn't grasp the fact that they were sinners. They could not recognize their sin. And the main point of this passage is that true disciples recognize and repent of their sin. Because you see, Jesus calls the righteous to recognize their sin. But then he says that sinners must repent of their sin. The point in these words is not that, that Jesus just accepts sinners just the way they are. All right. It's very easy for us in, in a day of tolerance and, and just inclusion for us to see Jesus here just embracing the sinners just as they are. Uh, there's a song even that says, come just as you are to worship. Just, just come however you are. All right. There's a certain element of truth to that, the truth that's in this passage. Jesus comes to call broken and hurting people. But what's he calling them to? What he's calling them to is genuine discipleship. And Luke fills out this calling when he says, I came to call the right, not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What Christ did was not come and, and preach acceptance. He came and preached repentance. Christ does not leave these sinners where they are. This is not a license for an attitude that says, hey, Jesus is just here for sinners. I'm just a sinner. You're just a sinner. Leave me alone, man. Quit, quit telling me that I got to stop my sin because, hey, Jesus accepted sinners. And he even ate meals with tax collectors and sinners. So, hey, don't be razzing on me for my way of life that is clearly unbiblical. Don't be telling me that I can't. Don't be telling me that I'm breaking God's law because, hey, Jesus just loves sinners too. And he just accepted them all. This is not what Jesus is doing. What Jesus is doing is calling sinners to repentance. And yet it's those people who recognize that they are sinners. That's the person that Jesus came to minister to. Not the person who is self-righteous, who is inflated in their own mind about their own goodness. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. 
Sinners like to keep calling themselves righteous. It's true of all of us. And until we see ourselves as Christ does, we'll never know the salvation that he has to offer. Because as long as you continue to misunderstand the purpose of Jesus, that he came for vile, helpless sinners, and you realize that that's you, you'll never be a genuine disciple. Turns out that the people who thought they were worthy of the Messiah's attention are not. In fact, they're no more worthy than the socially repulsive people that they dismiss. Jesus says, I'm not here for you self-righteous Pharisees. I'm here for the sinners to call them to repentance. And this is Jesus' call to all men for discipleship. Righteous person, self-righteous person, you need to recognize your sin. Sinful person, person who is well aware that you are a sinner, shot through and through, what you need to do is repent of your sin, turn away from your sin, and turn to Christ. It's an amazing thing that the authoritative king chooses to call broken sinners. He doesn't call the excellent. He doesn't call the noble. He calls those who are sinners. He doesn't come to the righteous, to the uppity of this society. He comes to the sinners. He could have whoever he wants, but he rejects the self-righteous, the external do-gooders. And that's the same Jesus we have today. He rejects those who are merely external. Jesus exposes the religious but he embraces the repentant sinners. And we need to know today that we cannot be genuine disciples if we come to Christ with our own righteousness in our hands. If we come to him and say, look at me. Look how well I know your law. Look at all the good things that I do. That's not a genuine disciple. Jesus wants something other than the sacrifices of your Sunday morning. And more than the sacrifices of your charitable good deeds and of, of you being generally a good person. And Jesus wants more than our little Christian games that it's so easy for us to play. Jesus wants all of us. And it is so easy for me, and it is so, I know it is so easy for you to just dabble on the fringes of a relationship and of a commitment to Jesus Christ. And it's so easy to do this Christian thing we do in our communities. It's so easy to gather here on Sunday. And, and, and look okay. It's so easy for us to, to solace our consciences. By uh, I, I've spent some time in the word this week. It's so easy for us to give so little of genuine discipleship. And what Jesus says in this passage is true disciples. They recognize their sin. And they turn from it. And they give all to him. When David confessed his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, he, he wrote this in Psalm 51. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so what, what is the point of this passage for you today as a believer? For one, we should come to this passage with gratitude. Far from being offended when we're reminded that Jesus came for sinners, we should be relieved. Because if you're a believer today, you should have the honest assessment of yourself, the biblical assessment of yourself that says, that's me. I, I don't fit in the righteous class. I, I fit in the sinner class. I know me. I know me better than anybody else. And I know I'm a sinner. I, I, I know that my heart is, is 
desperately wicked. I know that left to myself, I would never pursue God. I know that's true about me. And so when Jesus says, I came to call sinners and Christian, he's talking about you. He's talking about me. He came to call me from my sin. And he came to call you from your sin. There should be an immense amount of gratitude in our hearts that Christ came not for those who are self-righteous and self-congratulatory, but he came for the sinners because that's us. When we come to this passage, we should have gratitude. We should also have an imitation in our lives. Jesus came to sinners. And now he's rescued us from our sin. So in all reality, we're all just like poor beggars telling other beggars where they can come and find food. Far from us being also separate from those who fit in the class of sinners, we know that that was us. And except for the grace of God, that is us. And there should be an imitation in our lives because Christ went to the sinners and not to the self-righteous that, that we join his assessment of mankind, that those who are sinners, those who are sick, those are the ones who need his ministry. Who are the ones that we should be reaching out to week in and week out? It's those who are sick. It's those who are sinners. Those are the ones who, who need to hear the truth of the gospel and be swayed with its power and be impressed with the greatness of our Christ. It's sinners just like us. And I know that it is so easy for us to sit on, a, on, our, on our Christian pedestals and, and be so far removed from, from the yuckiness that is our world. And I'm not saying that we participate in the world's sin, but we cannot just pull ourselves out of the yuck that is this world. And if, you are gonna, if you're going to actually reach out to sinful people, you're going to be exposed to a lot of yuck. All right? I mean, if you're actually going to reach out to your unsaved neighbors and you're actually going to dig deeper than that, that layer of, of, of goodness that, that surrounds this community, if you're actually going to dig deeper and to see into the heart of things, you're going to find a lot of yuck. And as Christian people, that ought not surprise us and it not, ought not repulse us. It should be no surprise that the people around us are sinners. Of course they are. Of course we were, except for the grace of God, we still would be. And so we go to them with the only healing message that there is, the message of true discipleship from Jesus Christ, the authoritative one who says that righteous people must recognize their sin and sinners must repent of their sin. This passage calls us to genuine religion, to avoid the self-righteousness of those who, who missed the point of Hosea because they were so busy with the external. Those who missed the point of the coming of Christ because they wanted a Messiah that fit their expectation, because they wanted a Messiah that congratulated them instead of confronting them. We need to escape that danger that is so easy for us to slip into the external Valuing that above the internal. In fact, ignoring the internal. That is application for us as believers from this passage. And yet there is most certainly application for you today if, if you are not a true disciple of Christ. If you're not someone who, who has ever recognized that you're actually sinful. And in fact, you have a very great need. And your very great need is to turn from your sin. And yet you can never do that in your own strength. You could never get rid of your own sin. In fact, only a perfect substitute could get rid of your sin for you. Somebody's going to have to take the punishment and the blame. And it can't be you because you don't have enough good things you can do 
to get rid of the blame and the guilt. There's only one who could take away the sin that is yours, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus calls to sinners, and he says, Come, you sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of mercy, love, and power. He is able to deliver you. Doubt no more. Sinner, Christ is able to save you. In fact, he calls you to discipleship, to salvation. Christian, that's you and me. We were sinners. And yet Christ calls us to a genuine discipleship that doesn't ignore sin, it doesn't gloss over it, but it recognizes it, and then it turns away from it. Like Matthew, who did not ignore the fact that he was a tax collector and a sinner, and yet who repented from his lifestyle of sin. Let's all pray. Father, we are grateful for this passage that provides for us another facet of genuine discipleship. And it it brings to our view the reality that true disciples have to recognize that they are sinners and then they must turn from their sin. We are amazed that you would come not for the self-righteous, but for the sinner. Because we willingly and honestly confess that that's the class we belong in. And there is great gratitude in our Christian hearts today that you pulled us out of the sin that we could never escape. That you gave us a salvation we could never earn. That in fact, you you opened our eyes while we were so busy convincing ourselves that we were righteous. You opened our eyes to the fact that we're actually sinners and we cannot please you no matter how hard we try. You have shown us grace and we are so grateful to you. We long for that ongoing grace that, that we would be someone who presents, we'd be a people who present this life-changing message of discipleship to sinners. Will you give us the grace as we are in a world uh, full of sin and of darkness to not be stained by it and yet not to, not to hold ourselves apart from it either. Help us to be actively engaged in the lives of sinners around us because sinners are the people that you came to save. I also pray to you that if there's someone here today who has, who has never entered into a real relationship of discipleship with you, that even this message this morning would challenge their heart. Let it ring in their ears and let the, let the work of your Holy Spirit drive it deep into their hearts that they would repent of their sin, that they would turn from their self-righteousness and their confidence in their own efforts And instead, they would rest solely in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Will you do that work for your glory's sake? We want to learn more and more what it means to be a true disciple. And we want to do a better and better job of following you as true disciples. Because we admit that you are the king who has the rightful authority over us. We submit to your word. And we enjoy and we delight in the relationship that you offer us and the forgiveness of your call to discipleship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.